There's a, lot of, there's a lot of possibilities this week, I think. We haven't even thought about Dion Gaus yet. So. I was say, I was just about to say that. If you combine Willem Engel and Dion Gaus, that's <laughs> no, just don't. kind of... <laughs> Actually, I'm, I made myself feel Molly's ill. nightmare. <laughs> I made myself feel ill now. It's Friday, February 19, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, master student in civil engineering and voter for the Partij van de Planeten. And with me today is Gordon Derek, contributing editor at Dutch News and Green Pencil Rebel. Later on the podcast, we'll be joined by opinion poll supremo Tom Lauersen as we look ahead to next month's election. Yeah, he really is the uh, the Nate Silver of the Netherlands, right? He is, absolutely. The, 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 the... There's a guy on the BBC called Professor John Curtis who's always uh, on for every single election. He's a bit like that. He's he's got that kind of uh, ubiquitous appeal. He 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 he's the master of um, yeah of opinion polls. Yeah, I uh, I have to admit that I don't know how he looks like, how he sounds. Uh, he's like yeah. he's the complete opposite of Maurice de Hond, who yes. is a terrible opinion poller <laughs> and uh, but he's everywhere. And he's everywhere. Yeah, yeah indeed. Yeah. Uh, okay, um, so speaking of opinion polls, uh, we, we were both uh, both our job titles this week. I think refer to the same thing, which is uh, yeah, yeah uh, the, the the Hague City Council had this uh, tremendous uh, thing on their website, which is like for people who are voting from abroad for the first time, they actually have yeah. a kind of mock election. Yeah, all the elderly who uh, who yeah. signed up for uh, for postal voting. That's right. Everyone who's voting by post and is obviously yeah, and who's doing it for the first time, you can go on the Hague Council's website, and they've created um, a, a mock-up um, a ballot paper with the list of parties. But of course, because they're the council and they have to be neutral, they've they've invented a whole lot of parties and list of candidates. And someone has had a very fun afternoon coming up with names of parties <laughs> and candidates for these parties. I'm sure all these um, uh, these municipality officials have uh, have scheduled numerous countless meetings uh, in order to come up with these ideas and uh, to debate these names of the parties and debate the names of the candidates uh, yeah i particularly like the uh, partij van de planeten the planet yeah. party which had um uh, candidates uh, names such like um i don't know frida saturnus something yeah. like that and um uh, and i also liked um someone who's called oh, svart Krat as well in the partij van de planeten yeah. black hole Shall Black I? hole, yeah. yeah, yeah. That one was. Re- it uh, it's, it it uh, reminded me of these names of um, characters from Cluedo. Yeah, exactly. Which also have uh, these uh, these very uh, yeah. Yeah, very there was fun a party. Of, there, there was a party of colors as well. So uh, yeah, you know, that, oh, was, yeah. that was just like Cluedo. Yeah. Yeah, 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 indeed. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, what I also noticed uh, because they had this, uh, th- th- they also published uh, how 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 uh, the um, uh, mail-in vote voting ballot looks like, and it's uh, I, I prefer it over um, um, the way we have to vote because uh, we have this enormous mm. sheet with all the party uh, lists and all the candidates. Yeah. It's uh, it's the size of a bed sheet. Yeah, and it's ridiculous. And large. It is ridiculous, and the people who can vote uh, by mail just have this one sheet yeah. one yeah it's it's an a4 size paper mm. uh, it's very it looks very good you have to uh, cross the list you want to vote in and then you have to um uh, uh fill in the, the 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 number of the candidate and it's yeah it is a lot more sensible better. i think than the huge 
ballot paper where you have to where you just mark one circle in on a list of like I don't know like a thousand a thousand candidates. candidates. Yeah. yeah, you have now. Yeah, but there was one detail that you weren't so impressed by with the overseas ballot paper, isn't there, Paul? No, no, no. <laughs> I I am offended. Yeah. I have to say, you're triggered. On, really, aren't I think? Yeah, is the word because on the official ballot paper, like the 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 the, the bed sheet sized, you are allowed to uh, use only one color of pencil mm. and that is a red pencil yes um and you are provided with one but you can also bring one yourself and your vo- your vote is only valid when you uh, uh, uh yeah filled your 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 little circle with a red pencil but the the mail-in um uh, ballot uh, allows to have um a green color a and blue. a blue color yeah. and a black color yes well, I mean, this is madness. What's the world it's coming madness. to? Yeah. When you can actually vote from Kansas and Green Ink. Whatever next. Yes. Whatever <laughs> next. Yeah, indeed. So, um, no, just vote with your red pencil. Uh, I'm going to count votes. And I have to admit that I will uh, disregard every vote that's not <laughs> filled in with the red pencil. I don't think there'll be very many. I think most people are um, loyal to the red, to, to the red pencil. I hope so. I hope I so think. that tradition uh, still yeah. means something in this country. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So, um, yes, so, yes. So that's one enormous controversy, obviously. But uh, we also have, uh, as ever, the uh, another tradition, which is the op-hef of the week. So, uh, what is uh, this week's op- big op-hef poll? Well, um, this week's singer and uh, presenter Gordon, and he's not to be confused with uh, Gordon, the podcast host. No, that's a fa- there's a very clear distinction <laughs> between the two of you. Uh, yeah, and he is like Cherry Boudet, always an excellent op-ed generator. And this week, uh, yeah, it was once again um, the case um, because the singer bought a new dog called Toto recently, which he uh, shows very frequently on social media posts. Uh, however, the newest addition to his household led to a lot of criticism from many dogs lovers and the Dutch Animal Protection Society. Uh, They said that uh, the singer has to uh, stop promoting the French bulldog breed because uh, Toto is a uh, a French French bulldog. Mm. Uh, They say the dogs have a disproportionate amount of health problems due to, uh, yeah, inbreeding. Mm. For example, the dog's face is uh, way too flat and that leads to uh, breathing problems and uh, its skull is also too small for its eyes. So it's it also it constantly has uh, eye problems as well. Mm. Um, uh, Gordon decided to uh, ignore the criticism uh, and in response even opened a special Instagram account for his dog. He also said he wanted to start a TV show where he visits people with Toto. Um, a number of celebrities joined the criticism of Gordon's dog uh, such as his arch nemesis Gerard Joling, uh, and the op also led to uh, countless negative comments about Gordon and his dog on the internet. Uh, and now Gordon announced this week that he is uh, sick and tired of anonymous uh, people on the internet, and he said that he will sue a number of websites over the hate comments. And he said he's willing to take the matter to the European Court of Justice, and he started a petition for a law that bans anonymity on the internet. Hmm. I'm sure the European Court of Justice are really looking forward to considering the case of Gordon and his dog. It's exactly, not going to yeah. best to do at the moment. <laughs> well, it would be the second court case I will watch in its entirety on the, <laughs> yes. on the internet. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I'm very excited uh, about it. And it wasn't the first time Gordon ended up in in um, in uh, in court. Do you remember? Uh, I think a y- year or two ago, when uh, uh, his ex boyfriend uh, sued him because Gordon uh, denied that uh, they ever had a relationship, oh. and then the court had to um, uh, the judge had to read um, uh, uh, a count countless 
thousands of WhatsApp <laughs> messages, uh, and based on that, he uh, he determined that they had indeed uh, they indeed had a relationship. So uh, Gordon was uh, yeah ordered yeah. by the courts and never to deny it again. Never to deny a relationship with this guy. Yeah, but was a clue in the fact that there were thousands of WhatsApp messages between them that uh, the judge had to read. That's sort of. Suggests strongly yeah, well, that was, it was yeah, it was more than just a more than just a casual friendship. Exactly, and also yeah. the content of the of yeah. the messages. Uh, I'm sure. Uh, did you have to read Gordon's otherwise. book? I mean, that would have been the yeah. I read that book. Be terrible. <laughs> you, you did read it. Yeah. I did. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I once uh, wanted to give it to you as a birthday present, but I thought <laughs> no, this is not something you will. Uh, but after reading it, you decided against. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm very glad. I, uh, yeah. I think you would be happier with uh, the Avonde from uh, of uh, Gerard Reven. Yeah, I've, uh, I read that recently, and uh, yeah. Uh, uh, did you like it? I, uh, I, I did. Yeah. Um, oh wow. Less, um, le- less um, probably yeah, somewhere in between uh, the people because lots of people rave about it, lots of people absolutely hate it, and I'm yeah. sort of in the middle. I think. Um, I thought there were good moments in it. You, I thought that you take the Deus Assessor position. I take the Deus, uh, I take very debate. much the Deus Assessor position on this. Yeah. All yeah. right. I haven't yeah. read it. I just know from uh, from other people's experiences <laughs> that it is a terrible ah, book. Right. I officially read it once for my uh, of course, for my uh, exams. School. I, th- I think this is a yeah, thing. Exactly. A lot of books, a lot of books are ruined for people by the fact that they have to read them at school, and then yeah, they're, definitely they're, 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 they're taught about them by clueless literature teachers who don't really, uh, yeah, don't really inspire you. And then the, the, exactly. the book becomes associated with the teacher, and it puts you off for life. Lots of people in Scotland hate a book that I really love uh, called Sunset Song by Lewis Crassett Gibbon, which is a classic of Scottish literature. No one outside Scotland knows it, but everyone in Scotland reads it at school, and they all hate it. I read it mm. as an adult when I moved to Scotland, and I thought it was great. So, Yeah, so um, stop reading at schools. Yes, exactly. Don't read at school. This week was bad for the corona numbers, dreadful for skaters on natural ice, miserable for mosquitoes, horrendous for Dutch airlines, disastrous for PVV MP Dion Gauss, and absolutely catastrophic for the cabinet and its avondklok. Um, to uh, to counter all this uh, dreadfulness, <laughs> all, this uh, in the <laughs> all this negativity, in the second half of the episode, we have an interview with uh, Mr. Peilingwijzer himself, the man behind the poll of polls, Tom Lauwersen. Yeah, maybe we should ask him uh, for, for a poll on which of those stories is the most distressing or the most catastrophic. Another week, another ginormous failure by the outgoing cabinet. A court ruled on Tuesday that the endlessly debated and controversial curfew is unlawful and must be lifted with immediate effect. And to make matters worse, the case was brought by anti-coronavirus campaign group Viruswaarheid, which is led by conspiracy theorist, dance teacher, dreadlock wearer and virus Rasputin Willem Engel. The court said measures with such a far-reaching impact on the right of free movement like a curfew, requires extremely careful decision-making and the cabinet failed to do this. The curfew was not part of the measures allowed under the Corona law of October last year, but instead the cabinet used another emergency powers law to introduce the curfew. The court said this law was uh, designed for special urgency, such as a dike breach. Of course, they used this as an example in, their, in their ruling. Yes. I mean, that was inevitable. Anywhere else yeah. it would be like a natural disaster, like an earthquake or a hurricane, but we don't get those here we just get dike breaches yeah and a curfew under this law could only be evoked when there's no time to consult Parliament. The fact that the curfew was debated twice in the Tweede Kamer indicates that the cabinet had plenty of time to arrange the curfew with a proper legal basis and to prepare a special law, the court said. 
The curfew from 9pm to 4.30am was introduced in mid-January and was extended earlier this month until March 3rd. Hmm. So on Tuesday the court uh, struck out the curfew altogether. Um, What happened next? Well, in order to save the curfew, the cabinet immediately decided to appeal the court's decision. Uh, Prime Minister Mark Rutte said in a response that if the legal basis of the curfew is wrong, it it doesn't mean it isn't necessary. Uh, On Tuesday afternoon, the government requested an emergency hearing to suspend the court's decision and keep the curfew in place until the appeal uh, hearing on Friday. Uh, This hearing was a uh, pretty (laughs) spectacular piece of court theater um, with a presiding judge uh, sometimes uh, almost yelling at Willem Engel to keep uh, his mouth shut. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was also well, quite a sight to see Willem Engel, uh, you know, the conspiracy theorist, uh, debating the actual director of the Dutch Public Health Institute, Jaap van Dissel, uh, in the courtroom. Um, uh, Jaap van Dissel said, uh, told the court that it was uh, crucial to keep the curfew. Uh, and shortly before um, 9 p.m., so when the curfew came into effect, the court decided that the interest of the state uh, was more important than that of a protest group and decided to upheld the curfew to prevent a yo-yo effect. Right. Uh, so is the government doing anything else uh, to try and stave off this threat of the curfew being scrapped before March 2nd? Yeah, Rutte said that uh, he was uh, confident that the Court of Appeal uh, will uphold the curfew as it is currently arranged on Friday, but the cabinet decided nonetheless to prepare a special emergency curfew law, which was sent to Parliament on Wednesday. So, uh, yeah, within a day they uh, they uh, they drafted this law, mm. uh, which was uh, pretty spectacular. It was it was nice to see the government actually uh, doing something in a very short amount of yeah, time. Yeah, sure, now uh, she can make quick decisions when they need to. Yeah, rather than taking two months to decide that the infections are rising and they should do more than shut the bars at midnight. Exactly. So uh, in a way, it was also, uh, it was again very positive to see that the yeah. cabinet can make decisions yeah. very fast. Yeah. They, can, they can shift their ass when they need to. Yeah, the, current, the Tweede Kamer is, uh, was currently on, uh, on election recess and uh, it had to be recalled to debate the, uh, the bill. Uh, MPs were very critical about the cabinet's uh, legal blunder, even though only the SGP mentioned the fragile legal basis of the curfew in both debates. I think that's worth pointing out that we, mm. have, um, that we have a parliament which is supposed to, uh, you know, check the government and hold them account, and uh, they don't even think about um, 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 checking the legal basis of a law. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think uh, they are they are also uh, uh, partly to blame for this uh, this whole debacle. Mm. Yeah, opposition parties such as uh, PVV, FVD, Denk, uh, and independent MP Femke Merel van Kote Arese were very critical uh, and argued that uh, the cabinet had uh, resigned and lacks the uh, democratic mandate to introduce a measure uh, such as the curfew. And they also questioned the effect of the curfew uh, itself because uh, it is impossible to calculate the effect uh, independently from the one person visit rule uh, because those two uh, came came into effect simultaneously. Um, on Thursday evening, uh, the Tweede Kamer did vote in favor for the emergency curfew law and it also expected it will uh, pass the Senate on Friday. Yeah, and this this didn't come out of nowhere, did it? Because, I mean, in the first place, the viewers far height uh, challenged this in court on the legal basis. And uh, their lawyer, Ruben Pulse, had won a case earlier on um, about the uh, the rule about uh, you have to uh, take a test um, you, before you're allowed to fly back into the Netherlands. And he challenged that in court, and he won that case on a very similar premise, that it wasn't, um, uh, the, the law hadn't been uh, drafted properly. Um, and also, of course, the uh, the Council of State, uh, the Raad van Stater, had, uh, had questioned 
question whether using the emergency powers to bring in the curfew was the correct process. So, yeah, it's not. I don't. Think, I think Rutter can't really claim this came in from. The, the, this is a bolt from the blue. Yeah, and that's the, that is the the whole annoying thing of this uh, uh, of this story. You have this conspiracy theorist who uh, who wins court cases. Mm. I mean, how bad of a cabinet are you if you if you make that happen? Yeah. Yeah, so, so it, but it's going to resolve itself, it would seem, in a very classically Dutch way, in that the court will now strike out the old curfew, but on the same day, the government will put a new one through Parliament, which is, of course, what it should have done in the first place. And exactly. so the curfew will yeah. stand. But the question is, yeah. of course, what happens to the fines? Because about, I think, 14,000 people have been fined under the old curfew. Will those fines still be valid? Or will all those people get their money back? I, I assume everyone will get their money back because yeah. uh, uh, they were fined um, under an illegal law hmm. but yeah. i don't know uh, i i uh, i try to look it up uh, i uh, i don't know yet but that's mostly because margaret and Vertrappenhaus also uh, don't know yet how this will work yeah because the Vertrappenhaus had been fined then they would have scrapped all the fines anyway <laughs> that would have said. yeah that would have happened in one so day all we, have to do, we just have to catch Vertrappenhaus <laughs> outside his office at two minutes past nine in the next two days and it will settle everything yeah exactly yeah Yeah, so yeah, to, to, to lead away his dog somehow. Yeah. Make it make it run away <laughs> and then call the police. <laughs> yes. Ministers will announce next Tuesday whether they're ready to lift the curfew or ease lockdown restrictions, but the latest figures aren't very encouraging. Infection rates increased slightly in the last week, although that is partly because the numbers are driven down by the cold weather, which meant that testing stations were closed for a few days and some people were unable to travel to them. But even when you adjust for the cold snap, the seven-day average figure is back where it was just before the freeze, at around 3,600. The positive test rate is hovering around the 11% mark, which is uh, pretty high as well. The R number is creeping back up towards 1, and the more infectious strains, such as the so-called British variant, are now estimated to cause two-thirds of infections. The decline in hospital and intensive care admissions has also leveled off at around 1,900 patients and 520 intensive care cases, and the death rate has also stalled. So the wider picture seems to be the infections are flatlining, uh, and that's despite the fact we're in a lockdown, so yeah, not great news. And a curfew. And a curfew, yeah. And a one-person rule. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, is there any good news? Uh, well, I mean, in the last couple of days, we've seen increases of around 5% week on week, and it's predicted that this is around about time the third wave would start. So, if that's as bad as it gets, we can probably live with it, but uh, obviously, we don't know whether they, uh, this is going to this trend is going to increase back upwards in the next couple of weeks. Uh, the brighter picture is in nursing homes, uh, because their infections are still declining pretty fast. In the first week of January, more than 850 nursing homes had at least one infection in the previous two weeks. That's almost 40% of all the nursing homes we have in the Netherlands. That number's come down now steadily to around 450 and in the latest RIVM weekly report the number of cases came down for, by 17% for the 90 to 94 age group and 20% oh. for the over 95s. Now these are tiny um, numbers in the context of the whole population but they are also the first groups to be vaccinated. So that's yeah. possibly an early indication and it is very tentative that the vaccines are starting to have an effect. All right, at least we have some promising news. Um, and there's also better news uh, about the breath test. Yes, there's nothing to do with drink driving or drink cycling. Um, Amsterdam <laughs> has been experimenting with um, breath tests for coronavirus as an alternative to the PCR swab tests. The trials were halted last week because there were worries that they were producing a lot of false negatives, but it now turns out that that was uh, the results being read wrongly, according to the Regional Health Board, and they say the tests are, in fact, very reliable. 
And that's significant because frequent fast testing is now being talked about increasingly as a possible quick fix until everyone's vaccinated, now that it's clear that uh, lockdown's going to last for a bit longer. The government's said to be looking at introducing test certificates that would allow you to go out to a restaurant, a theatre or a festival or to your, to your office. The idea is you take a test and if the result's negative you can go out and about for the next 48 hours. Precautionary testing was used for the first CoronaSafe conference in Utrecht last week. 500 people attended an event at the Beatrix Theatre. They had to produce a negative PCR test uh, beforehand and have their temperature checked at the door. And there's going to be another seven trial events uh, over the next uh, month for up to 1,500 people, including a concert in the Ziggo Dome. Ingrid Dyson, the chair of the employers' organisation Feyeno NCV, told the Telegraph that the health ministry hopes to develop a short-term coronavirus-free certificate in the second half of March. But if that's a promise by Hugo de Jong, we probably expect to see them sometime in October. The Dutch economy shrank by 3.8% last year, the biggest contraction since World War II, according to national statistics agency CBS on Monday. In addition, 57,000 jobs were lost, also one of the highest totals since the war. However, fewer jobs uh, have gone than uh, could have been expected, thanks to government support measures. Uh, Dutch consumer spending uh, fell 6.6%, also the biggest decline since World War II, as people had less opportunities to spend their money on eating out and on culture and sport. At the same time, spending on furniture and DIY sort, uh, I think you uh, you also contributed I to that. I have contributed to uh, this this week, yes, indeed. Yeah, I've yeah. been buying furniture. Um. Well, thank you for supporting our economy. <laughs> uh, and also board game ma- uh, makers uh, had a record uh, year as well. Um, and I think uh, I contributed to that significantly. Right. Well, th- thank you for uh, your, your contribution to the economy. <laughs> You're welcome, Gordon. Um, (laughs) Savings have also uh, grown by almost uh, 60 billion euros, twice the 2019 figure. And across Europe, the picture is very different, the CBS said, pointing to the 5% contraction in Germany and a 10% shrink in the UK. It's almost like something else happened in the UK at the same time (laughs) that made their economic decline worse. I wonder if, if, if that's the case. What could what what could possibly (laughs) have gone wrong in the UK in the last year? Uh, one reason uh, for the differences is the different approaches to the lockdown. In Belgium, for example, all shops and also the construction sector was uh, closed down at the height of the pandemic, depending on if you live in Baarle-Hertog or not in Belgium. Yes. Uh, in the Netherlands, in contrast, uh, shops remained open and the building sector was not affected at all. Last week, the European Commission said the Dutch economy will grow by just 1.8% this year, and that is the lowest growth rate among the 19 Eurozone countries. But this estimate depends heavily on the vaccination rate in member states and the speed at which coronavirus measures can be reduced. So I don't know if they pro- if they used uh, the, the, the figures we had uh, until three weeks ago about the vaccine vaccination rate in the Netherlands because otherwise uh, 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 I'm sure we uh, we've, we will do better than uh, than this 1.8 percent yeah um, the commission estimated last year's contraction in the Dutch economy at 4.1 percent compared with 6.8 percent across the eurozone as a whole where lockdowns were more severe uh, in general yeah very true and uh, it was also a very bad year for KLM It was terrible. Yeah. It was almost as if they were led by Hugo de Jonge. (laughs) 
Um, yeah, it's prob- that's probably an understatement of the year. Uh, the, uh, the, the Royal Dutch Airlines posted a loss of uh, 7.1 billion euros last year. Uh, the number of passengers fell by 67% and freight transport was down 21%. So, uh, yeah, a terrible year for KLM. Uh, the coronavirus halted, of course, air travel and planes that did fly only had a small number of passengers. Uh, air France KLM had to fire almost 9,000 employees to cut costs and the Dutch and French government have already pumped 3.4 and 7 billion euros respectively into the airline group and uh, they are also in talks on a further support package even though that's uh, uh, not going very smoothly mm. at the moment. Uh, KLM already announced plans to cut another 6,000 jobs so yeah mm. it's also a very bad year if you were in a, a KLM employee. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see uh, when the pandemic ends whether all this money that people have saved up is going to get plunged back into the economy. Yeah, that's what I mean, uh, that's what the the economists of the CBS said. Uh, yeah. the, the the big difference with the with the previous uh, economic crisis is that now people want to spend money and yeah. uh, overall are able to spend money. They're just uh, yeah waiting for it to do it. Yeah, they don't have the opportunity. Whereas in past recessions, no. they don't have money to spend because they've lost their jobs. So yeah, I that, that that was one um, consolation, wasn't it? The unemployment rate has uh, has, has actually gone down so far during yeah. the pandemic because the government is uh, supporting people's yeah is spending money to keep people in work. Yeah, but yeah, the question remains. Of course, uh, 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 will um, um, will will companies uh, still be able to uh, to stay afloat uh, when the when the government uh, ends this uh, the yeah, the the support? Yeah, we shall see. Just as the Dutch government has kept KLM flying through the pandemic, you can do your bit to keep this podcast on the air by becoming a Patreon sponsor. For as little as a dollar or a euro a month, you can show your support for what we do. Make sure we keep you up to date with all the latest news and earn yourself a free shout out on the next podcast. This week, we welcome three new patrons. So thank you very much indeed to Alexander Perschneier, to Doc Slacker and to Gretchen Garnett. Alexander messages... To what? To Doc Slacker. Doc Slacker is uh, yes, is a person's uh, name that they posted uh, their money on, and I'm quite happy to take people's money, call people what they like if they're if they're paying us exactly, money. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's fine. <laughs> Alexander messaged us to say thank you for the podcast and, for, of course, for the Twitter translations of Ritter and Co. Well, that's not strictly us; it's uh, Dutch News's mystery tweeter, but we'll uh, we'll take the credit <laughs> anyway. Uh, my question to you, he says, is uh, where would you bring a foreign friend to show him or her the best of the Netherlands? Um, yeah, uh, 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 I think way too many people only visit Amsterdam when uh, when they yeah. have uh, when they come to the Netherlands. So I would suggest to just go somewhere else yes. and basically just go to any of the other smaller provincial cities in the Netherlands. And uh, when we were debating how to answer this question earlier today, uh, I thought, um, yeah, what is now what is the most um, typical uh, uh, Dutch thing to do and that is uh, uh, visit the polders yeah. and especially when you stand on a dike and you look at look to the left and you see the water level well at your feet and uh-huh. you l- look to the right and you see the water level m- yeah meters meters below that and it always freaks people out when uh, when they see it yeah. for the first time um, because it's uh, yeah. of course a very unnatural thing but um, yeah it is it is very typically Dutch yeah. so I would suggest to just go to one of the provincial cities uh, hire a, a bike uh, yes. for example yeah, and, uh, yeah that's important yeah yeah 
that's very important hire a bike uh, for example at every station you can you can hire a bike uh, and just uh, do one of these uh, Anway Bay uh, cycling routes yeah. through and the through the city and through the yeah countryside surrounding it yeah and for extra Dutch points uh, if you go with a partner you should make sure you both wear matching jackets as well <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah 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 and bring your red pencil and bring a red pencil yes yes to, in to case you have to card. vote for something absolutely yeah yeah so you can, then you can vote for the water board it's, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah so that's one thing everyone can vote for yeah yeah I would, I would agree you know, either go to polders or go to one of the small towns and uh, yeah, we became a little short list of uh, small towns you can visit I, I, I mean I'm quite uh, a big fan of Delft actually in this context because it's got everything that you want to find in a Dutch town and it's in a very small space you can walk around you know it's got the canals it's got the pretty streets it's got the buildings it's got art it's got all the you know, the, the Delft Museum I think is really it is a really good small provincial museum with uh, some uh, yes. Vermeer and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very, you can take in a lot of Dutch culture within You can climb distance. the second highest church tower in the Netherlands. Indeed, you can do that as well. There's a, there, there, there's a square with lots of cheese shops, so you can get thoroughly cheesed out yeah. as well. So yeah, I would recommend Delft. Delft has everything. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would recommend Gouda, I think. Yeah. For also Which for is also reasons. a very lovely city. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> lots of cheese uh, indeed over there. Yeah. Okay, and we also have a question from uh, the aforementioned Doc Slacker, who uh, says, uh, introduces um, uh, him or herself as a Spanish-Peruvian now living in Amsterdam, hopefully for the long term. Uh, I don't have a deep question, just what's up with Flappy? Is it a joke song, or <laughs> did, did, or what is it? Because my Dutch friends act like it's a serious Christmas song. So, um, It is a, uh, a song by a comedian, Joop van het Hek. I think he wrote it in the 70s or the 80s or something. I'm not entirely sure, but it's a long time ago. And it, it is about um, when he was a child on Christmas Day, uh, he uh, went to his backyard to feed his uh, his rabbit, his pet rabbit, but it was gone. Mm. And he, um, yeah, in the song, he uh, he is uh, wondering what happened to Flappy, Floppy and uh, if he perhaps had opened uh, the door of the cage and uh, that's why he escaped mm. um, but at the same time his mother said to him don't go into the shed because your father is working there and he doesn't want to be disturbed and then uh, on Christmas uh, on the Christmas dinner when he is on, at the table mm. uh, very sad uh, all of a sudden his father walks into the the, the, the dining chamber the dining room and uh, with floppy on, on a uh, <laughs> silver platter so he um, yeah that's what uh, what happened to, uh, to floppy oh. and that's also what happened to uh, why he didn't wasn't allowed to go into the uh, to to go into the shed right. but then the second uh, second uh, half of the song um, it starts the same way uh, but that his mother cannot find uh, his father and that he tells his mother not to go in, into the shed because he is busy uh, and uh, yeah that's uh, the and it started as a as, as a joke I think as a as a part of a comedy show but yeah it's uh, it's found its way into into Dutch culture mm-hmm. and now it's it's it turned into a very serious Christmas song indeed right okay so uh, but I wasn't really aware of this actually it's, it's, it's passed me by uh, the whole flappy saga but uh, I'm intrigued you never now. heard it I, it does ring a very faint bell, but I don't. Uh, I haven't heard it recently. No, I wasn't aware it had become uh, associated with Christmas as a big Christmas number. Oh, it definitely no. is. I, I also think it's in the top two thousand. Oh, it must be. Let me check. Yeah, it must be there. Yeah, number one hundred ten. Ah, it is okay. the one hundred tenth best song ever, according to the, <laughs> according Dutch, to public. the Dutch public, who are never wrong on these things. <laughs> 
If you'd like to join our enlightened band of Patreon sponsors, or you just want to learn about more about novelty Dutch hits, go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dutchnewsnl. Several political parties have expressed concern about the effect of opinion polls on voters during the extended election period. Polling stations are going to be open for three days rather than one to reduce the risk of people contracting coronavirus at the polling station. But although exit polls have been banned before voting closes on March the 17th, regular polls will still be published and a leaders' debate is scheduled for March the 16th while people are voting. Sources in The Hague have told BNR Radio that there are fears that this could lead to voters being influenced. Others are concerned that it could undermine trust in the elections after the event. Broadcaster NOS said moving the leaders' debate to Sunday was a no-go because the Christian parties won't debate on the Sabbath, while Saturday is too early. Current affairs show Ein van Dach and opinion pollster Maris de Hont are also planning to publish their final polls on March the 16th. We'll be discussing that and other opinion poll-related issues in the second half of the podcast with Professor Peiling himself, Tom Lauser. I mean, I think it's just idiotic to open the polls at uh, March 16th and then allow debates and uh, other polls to still uh, go through. I mean, that's just... Yeah, it's, uh, it's they should have thought about that. Yeah, they yeah. should have thought that through. I don't see why they can't debate on Saturday. Do people have really such short memories? They can't. They go to polling station on Tuesday and they've forgotten what people said three days earlier. Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> the electorate has a notoriously bad memory indeed, but I don't think uh, their their memory is that bad. BVV MP Dion Graus is facing a fresh investigation into allegations he forced his then-wife to have sex with his bodyguards. NRC wrote a very lengthy article about the allegations based on documents, tapes and digital material that was recently submitted by Graus's ex-wife Joyce to the police. Um, his ex-wife uh, divorced him in 2014. Joyce filed a similar complaint in January 2019, accusing one of Geert Wilder's most trusted BVV MPs of psychological abuse, but dropped the complaint six months later. The NRC article described that uh, Dion Gauss feared for his safety as an MP for the anti-Islam party uh, PVV and that he had requested government officials and agencies on numerous occasions for a security detail. When they denied his request, Gauss supposedly hired private security uh, and paid his bodyguards by allowing them to have sex with his wife against her will, according to the article. In taped phone calls with Joyce, he asserts repeatedly that the sex was consensual. One of the two bodyguards named in the dossier confirmed to NSA that the events had taken place, while the other denied it. Uh, the incident supposedly took place at locations arranged and organized by Graus, such as hotel rooms, saunas, and even in his parliamentary office in The Hague. Graus denies the allegations, and Geert Wilders' only response came on Twitter on Saturday, when he wrote, just putting NRC in the cat litter tray, have a good weekend. Uh, the public prosecution service confirmed it had received documents from Gauss's ex-wife, but would not comment further. Uh, so for people who don't know anything about Dion Kraus, he's actually one of the longest serving uh, MPs. Uh, to, to, to tell us a bit more about him. Yeah, he is, uh, he's someone who has been part of Geert Wilders' PVV party from the start, after Wilders uh, left the VVD in 2004. He became uh, an MP in 2006 after the elections, and uh, yeah, Gauss is probably one of the most uh, remarkable figures in the Tweede Kamer, with his long hair and his uh, colored glasses and uh, his uh, thick Limburg accent. Uh, and he is best known as the architect of the Animal Cops, a 500-man uh, strong specialist uh, police unit dedicated 
dedicated uh, for animal abuse cases. Uh, it was part of the uh, 2010 coalition agreement between VVD and CDA. Uh, and uh, yeah, this coalition was supported by the PVV in order to have a majority, the notorious Gedoogconstructie. Uh, uh, there are yeah, countless of bizarre anecdotes about Gauss. Uh, for example, he once demanded blinds for his office windows from the Tweede Kamer, but when they refused, he threatened to sue the parliament. Uh, and he also demanded an alarm button on his desk from the counter-terrorism coordinator. Uh, eventually, they installed a button on his desk, but without a battery. So uh, it was uh, basically useless. Uh, but at least they got him <laughs> quiet, according to uh, an NSA article I remember very vividly. Yeah, that's a, that's a great detail. Um, but it's not the first time that Krauss has been uh, accused of uh, yeah, un- unsavory behavior, should we say. No, indeed. Back in 2003, so that was before he was an MP, Krauss uh, faced allegations of domestic violence and stalking from two former partners. One of them claimed he had grabbed her by the throat and threatened to put a gun to her head. And uh, yeah, she was, uh, she was pregnant at the time. So that was uh, also a very uh, uh, yeah, terrible detail. Uh, the prosecution service decided not to proceed with the case. Uh, but later uh, it said that there had been sufficient evidence to bring charges against House after all. And they said they regretted its decision not to uh, go ahead with it. Um, more recently, Gauss was accused of lying about where he lives. He claims that his official address is in Limburg and he received 125,000 euros travel expenses uh, over the year, uh, even though he, uh, he actually lives in Voorburg. That's only 10 kilometers away from the Binnenhof. Yeah, um, and but but now that these uh, documents have been uh, submitted to, to the police by his ex-wife, does that mean he's being uh, investigated uh, over these incidents again? Uh, yeah, 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 indeed. Yeah. So they they reopened the uh, the investigation, uh, uh, and uh, yeah, because it's uh, I I don't know, Gauss apparently um, yeah was used to record basically everything he did, yeah. every phone call he made, every meeting he had, uh, basically because I think he was just a very paranoid person. Yeah. He's uh, kind of like also... a older Richard Nixon, wasn't he? He wanted to keep records <laughs> of everything. So they could, uh, yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Gauss was very, uh, uh, yeah, very afraid about his uh, security, and that's also the reason why he hired these uh, these um, uh, private uh, uh, bodyguards. Uh, so yeah, he's just a very paranoid person, and uh, one of the other reasons why he wanted to record everything was that because he wanted to have a biography and to have a television series about his life. So he recorded uh, basically everything to, uh, yeah, to uh, uh, as source material for these uh, these plans in the future and his wife initially um, assisted him with this yeah. uh, he she kept track of his uh, his archive for example and that's also the reason why she had access to so many of of these recordings yeah. and she could bring them to the to the police yeah. I, I I wonder why she didn't do that in the first place because her her first official complaint was in um, last year in the, in in January uh, or January 2019, 2019 I have yeah, to say. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't understand why she didn't uh, 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 submit these um, these recordings in the first place. But uh, yeah, it uh, it's now reason for the police to reopen the investigation. Yeah. So we shall follow that with interest. Yeah. Indeed. <clears throat> 
And of course, he's odd. He's high up the list of candidates again, and the PFF are likely to win as many seats or more uh, the next ele- the election in March. They? So yeah. So even if uh, Heert Wilders had decided to to get rid of him now, he would be uh, he would be re-elected anyway yeah. because uh, the list is final now yes. and uh, they can't make any changes. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I have to say it does make you wonder what Dion Graus knows about Geert Wilders uh, 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 because. Geert Wilders just keeps uh, supporting him no matter what yeah. and uh, y- yeah if if anything these sort of allegations should be more than enough to um, at least doubt someone someone's you, integrity you would think in, uh, in any normal uh, party it would be yeah it would be toast several times over but uh, yeah, yeah he seems to be untouchable as you say so <clears throat> makes you wonder it does Last week's wintry weather prompted an outbreak of skating fever as the coldest temperatures in eight years gripped the country in parts of the Achterhoek, the temperature got down below minus 15 overnight. Lakes and canals froze over, and that meant a mass rummaging through sheds as people dug out their old skates. Coronavirus rules meant competitive races were out, and people could only go skating with their own household or one friend, and they had to keep one and a half metres apart. There was a flurry of excitable headlines in the international press suggesting the coronavirus pandemic had killed hopes of the marathon skating race, the Elfstedertocht, going ahead in Friesland, but the prosaic truth is it just wasn't cold enough. No, yeah. as everyone in in Friesland realized from the start, yes. but uh, the rest of the country refused to uh, to look at the facts. Yeah, and particularly in the Hague, uh, they got very excited about the idea of having the other stage talked. Exactly. Um, were there any downsides? Well, apart from all the politicians jumping on the Alstadertocht bandwagon, uh, which we discussed last week, it was a painful experience for around forty thousand people who ended up in A and E. Hospitals urge people to go easy on the ice to avoid overburdening the healthcare system because, after all, there is a pandemic on. But around a 1,000 people needed operations on broken wrists, hips and shoulders. Some hospitals were operating non-stop in multiple theatres, but in hindsight it was an unavoidable situation, said the chairman of the Trauma Surgeons Association, Mike Hochevorst. And I just want to pause to acknowledge that name. <laughs> It's a very, very nice name. It's a great indeed. piece of uh, uh, nominative determinism, Mr. Holger Forst, Mr. High Frost being the, um, uh, yeah. The, um, we have a uh, gladheidscoördinator okay. of Rijkswaterstaat, uh, a, a slippery coordinator. How yes. would you translate yeah, that? Yeah, kind of, uh, yeah, what do you call it? Um, yeah, for, for when conditions are very slippery, yeah. He's in charge of the critters. Yeah. Let's let's keep it that way. It's in Dutch. It's called the gladheidscoördinator, yeah. the slippery yeah. coordinator. Yeah. Uh, you know what his name is? Go on. Sjoerd Frieswijk. Excellent. <laughs> yes. So we have all. I think they 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 specifically look for for these kind yeah. of. Uh, they must people, have it on purpose. Uh, yeah. The, 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 it should be a political party in uh, the Hague's fantasy election. Really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The the Friespartij. Yeah. yeah. And all the people associated with icy weather. Indeed. So, uh, Paul, did you get out on the ice uh, last weekend? No, unfortunately not. Uh, I wanted to go. I was on my way to the Hofvijver uh, Uh on Friday, uh, the the pond in front of the parliament building, because I saw on Twitter that people were ice skating there. I was really excited to go there Mm. because I want to visit that little small island uh, in in the middle of the the lake over there. The island with no name, yeah. The islands with no name, uh, but as I was, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, getting my ice skates and uh, walking to the to the tram, I uh, I saw on Twitter that the uh, all the ice surrounding, um, you know, on the on the on the edge yeah. of the of the lake, uh, yeah, 
uh, broke, yes. so people couldn't live anymore. So everyone was uh, was stuck yeah, on the ice and had to uh, on the island outside uh, yeah. The, 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 yeah outside the Binnenhof. Yeah, yeah, and they had to uh, had to be evacuated. Yeah. So I, uh, I have a petition now. I want to have Expedition Robinson uh, <laughs> filmed at that little island. Yeah. You want to have a kind of future. Lord of the Flies scenario on the <laughs> <laughs> on in, in front of the uh, yeah, Parliament <laughs> complex. The outside this would make office. an excellent reality TV show. Yeah. don't let uh, John the Mole hear this because he will steal your idea. He probably will. Yeah, yeah. I also like the fact that icebreakers had to go up and down the little channel that goes past Mark Rutter's office, breaking the ice, so that people didn't <laughs> skate up right up to his window. And presumably yeah, start I, making, but you know, rude gestures uh, through it or something. Yeah, yeah. If Margrethe would be smart, he would just have opened a cook and soapy cram uh, yeah. in 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 his uh, in his uh, in his window and then just, just sell erta soup and uh, and hot chocolate to uh, to the people ice skating totally. there. Yeah. yeah, that would be really a VOC mentality. Absolutely. Did you skate? No, I went sledging. Uh, I went out to the dunes ah. and took the sledge uh, that I'd uh, had in the shed for the last eight years. Um, and made the most of that so we managed to find a found a bunker uh, tucked away behind the dunes uh, where no one else was and we just had it to ourselves for a couple of hours it's great a, uh, was it a German bunker? Well, obviously it was a German bunker because it was in the it was in the, the Hague Dunes. So, so thanks to yeah, thanks to Hitler for providing us uh, <laughs> <laughs> an excellent uh, venue for our sledging uh, entertainment. So, is there any chance of more skating action this weekend? No. In fact, it's forecast to be sixteen degrees and sunny. So, I'll probably be uh, getting out my garden furniture. You know what that means, right? What sixteen degrees? Everybody will go to 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 the beach in uh, uh, in Sandford now. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, or Nordvag. Yeah. Or Nordvag, yeah. yeah. The warm weather brings with it the high-pitched buzz of mosquitoes, but if you do squash a bug this spring, don't throw it away. Scientists at Wageningen University want your dead bloodsuckers in the name of research. They're curious to know what effect the cold snap has had on the mosquito population, and they also want to find out more about the spread of the West Nile virus, uh, as if we didn't have enough viruses at the moment, which was detected <laughs> in the Netherlands last year. Earlier research suggests that the common mosquito, Culex pipiens molestus, which is presumably Latin for irritating buzzing pest, survives the winter... <laughs> We're going to have to ask... Uh, or it's Latin for cherry baudet. <laughs> it could be, yeah, it could be cherry baudet Latin, couldn't it? Yeah. yeah. Research suggests that the mosquito survives the winter in crawl spaces and cellars. The West Nile virus, meanwhile, infected seven people in Utrecht and Arnhem last autumn. It causes mild flu-like symptoms in most people, so it's just a flu. But around 1% can develop more serious conditions, such as encephalitis, which uh, on some occasions is fatal. It's transmitted by mosquitoes who've bitten infected birds and then go on to feed on humans. Wageningen hmm. University biologist Arnold von Fleet said, It's not something to be frightened of particularly, but we want to be on the alert. He also advised people to protect themselves against mosquito bites by using insect repellent and a mosquito net. That's uh, for hanging over your bed, not for running around and catching the mosquitoes in. <laughs> there are instructions on how to send in your flattened specimens on the university's webpage, uh, which we'll link to in our liner notes. This uh, this story about uh, sending uh, mosquitoes <laughs> to uh, to scientists reminds me of uh, of uh, of this. Uh, one time that the uh, Natuurhistorisch Museum Rotterdam, known for the uh, Domino Mus and, oh, yes. um, and whatnot, uh, they once called people to send in uh, pubic louse really? if they had one. Okay. Because 
apparently it's it's going extinct because everyone is shaving uh, down below That's terrible news. Uh, and they yeah. really wanted to have uh, uh, one on display and they couldn't find one so they uh, they uh, yeah so they, the uh, they released yeah yeah they they uh, they released a press uh, statement uh, asking people to send uh, send their yeah. um Save yeah. and send in their their lice yeah their lice if they had one yeah with four weeks to go to the election, all eyes are turning once again to the opinion polls as the political parties jostle for position. So this week we invited Tom Lauerser, Associate Professor in Political Science at Leiden University, to talk about how polls interpret and shape the political landscape. Tom is the creator of the Peilingweiser, or the Poll of Polls, which is an aggregate of several of the biggest opinion polls and is widely quoted by the Dutch media and, of course, by us at Dutch News. Welcome, Tom, and it's uh, very good to have you with us. Hi. So first of all, can you maybe just explain um, to the lay people uh, listening uh, exactly how the panelling visor works? Well, it, it's basically, you could say, a sort of average of three main opinion polls in the Netherlands. So under the hood, it's a little bit more complicated because it takes into account how big each poll is and how recent each poll is and whether a polling a company consistently over or underestimates a, a particular party compared to the others. But to say it in simple terms, I would say it's a sort of weighted average of the three main opinion polls. And you make quite a point of the, uh, the fact that you give ranges uh, rather than exact numbers of seats. So uh, why is that such an important point? Well, I think it's something that every poll should do, because every poll is based on a sample of, uh, of voters, ranging from about 1,000 to 2,000, and in some cases 3,000, which works fine, right? If you have a representative sample uh, that can tell you really a lot about what, where the parties stand, but within a certain margin of error. So I think it's really important to communicate that clearly. And because the piling visor is based on polls, it also has this margin of error. So in, in that sense, I think it's really important to communicate that very clearly. So that's why I'm opting to present ranges rather than the point estimates. Well, you can find the point estimates on the website if you look closely. But I thought, let's make it easy for media to cite the ranges instead of the point estimates. But they don't really do that, do they? Usually when they present the polls, they, they still give exact numbers. No, I think most of them present the ranges most of the time. Uh, so I'm, I'm working together in publishing the Piling Visor with NOS, and they always cite the ranges. Uh, other media also do this more often, or they have something very vague, like in the polls, this party is polling over 40 seats, something like that, which is fine with me as well, because it, it is true. And it's indicating that we don't perhaps know the exact number, but uh, we have a, a, an indication how big this party is. In the Netherlands, of course, we have a very crowded field. Uh, certainly, if you're used to, say, being in the UK or the USA, there's lots of parties. Nobody gets more than 25%. You have these pockets of voters uh, in places like the Bible Belt. Um, how challenging is it for pollsters to come up with reliable figures and make sense of this very complicated picture? Well, um, polling has, I think, not become much easier over the last 20 years, although the, the record of pollsters has also not deteriorated, so they've been able to meet these challenges. 
Um, well, in the past, most polling in the Netherlands would have been uh, by telephone or using a method called uh, random digit dialing, where you just type in a random phone number and see whether it exists and someone picks up, which ensures some kind of randomness. But of course, that worked well in the day that basically everyone had a landline yeah. um, and it doesn't work very well anymore. So since tw- uh, 2006, they have all switched to online polling. And they're getting a good representative sample of voters, which is sometimes called a panel. So most of these polls have panels of about 50,000, 60,000 people. And if that panel is more or less representative of uh, all voters, then if you draw a sample from your panel, then that will also be uh, more or less representative of all voters. But that's what really where the challenge is. It's also where differences are between pollsters. Mm. So there's, there's one pollster... Uh, well-known Maurice de Hond in the Netherlands, who's he's not in my piling visor because he refuses uh, to cooperate, uh, or actually he, he threatens legal action if I use his figures, uh, which which he publishes online. But he allows people to uh, sign up themselves for his panel, um, which, uh, according to uh, people who have even a bigger understanding of polls uh, than myself, uh, really survey methodologists, they say, well, that's a threat to the design because how do you know that the ones who sign up for your panel are equally interested in politics, uh, equally distributed across the country as those who do not sign up? So it's better to invite people according to a random sample and and really hope and sort of make an effort to really include everyone, uh, even if they don't really want to, to really try them to convince be part of your panel. Uh, doesn't the Invandar panel also have uh, a panel where people can just sign up on the internet to uh, to participate? That's true. Invandar opinion panel is also a self-sign-up uh, panel. Uh, and that's also the reason why they do not use this panel for their seat uh, uh, polls. Oh, so okay. their vote intention polls are uh, based on the polls of Ipsos, uh, another polling company, who does have a panel that's that's not consistent of people who, who sign up themselves. Een van daag opinie panel, they use it for to run sort of questions about societal affairs and politics, where usually being 5% out on a, an opinion question matters a little bit less than being 5% out on a vote intention question, right? So if you ask, what, what do you think of the curfew that's currently on? Well, if that support is 65 or 70%, that's the sort of same ballpark. It's okay if that's a little bit off. But if you're doing polls and support is either 10% or 15%, that's a really big gap. So especially when it comes to vote intention polls, I think this difference uh, is important. And you do see currently relatively the biggest differences between the Maurice de Hunt Bell.nl poll uh, who, for example, has the, the Liberal Party, the VVD, uh, quite a bit lower than the other pollsters, which are in the piling visor. So there, there are some differences uh, between these, uh, these pollsters, and I think you can relate that mainly to the way their panel is consistent of. What are we really looking at when we see an opinion poll? So people sometimes look back at from the election and say the polls were all wrong because they didn't reflect the final results. Are they supposed to predict the outcome or is it more a case of measuring the trends uh, in the course of the campaign? Well, a poll asks what people would vote today. So I think that's 
what it's supposed to measure. And of course, people can still change their minds. So I, of course, to some degree, what people say they vote today is going to be predictive of what they're voting in March, but their primary objective, and that's what Dutch pollsters also say, is to measure support at a given day. Well, of course, if you measure support very close to the election day, uh, the day before or so, then you would expect that the differences with the final election outcome are relatively small. But even then, people might still change their minds. Um, and that's also the favorite arguments of pollsters of why there might be any differences. They say, well, people might have changed their minds at the last uh, moment. Um, insofar as there is research into this topic, this is indeed often the case to a small extent, but there are also differences between polls and the election results that are related to uh, pollsters' methodology, so that they have this panel, but there are still some issues with the representativeness of the panel, which leads to not too large, but but still some uh, deviations from what they're supposed to, uh, supposed to measure. But in the last few times, I think Dutch polls have done reasonably well. They've not been perfectly accurate. Uh, but in the last uh, a general election, they were mostly off uh, a little bit for the Liberal Party with five or six seats. So that's about four, four and a half percent that they were off. That's, I think, a bit bigger than they would have wanted. But that was really the only party for which there was such a large uh, differences. And they still had them correctly as the uh, the biggest party uh, by some margin. Uh, and uh, for the other parties, they were also largely correct. And even the differences were smaller. And uh, we do see during Dutch election campaigns, you often see quite big shifts uh, in people's voting patterns. We had uh, the, the VVD uh, put on quite a lot of uh, votes in the last week of the last campaign, I think. And in the 2012 election, saw a very big contrast between the SP losing support very quickly and the PFDR really surging upwards. So how good are the polls at picking up these developments early? Well, actually, in, in 2012, I think it was the polls that picked up this development, uh, which really happened only in the last month before the election. And so there was a debate and the party leader of the Labour Party, Pavan Ad, did really well, which led, led to some polling surge, uh, which led to more talk about uh, a positive effect, and it got the ball rolling, uh, basically. And I think it's, it was really the polls which picked that up. And I think the final polls had the Labour Party and the Liberal Party very close. The Liberal Party, the VVD, turned out to be just a little bit bigger. But it was very clear uh, from a month before uh, that there had been a big change and that was correctly picked up by the pollsters. In, in 2017, the Liberal Party gained a few seats over the last weekend, mostly, and that surge was so late that some of the polls did not pick it up because they had already been fielded before these things happened. Uh, there was an incident with a Turkish minister, etc. So, Does that explain the difference in the um, any predictions of the VVD party um, uh, seats? Well, not completely. So I think it's a partial explanation. And we, we did see a small increase in all polls at the in the last few days. But even the, the pollster who had the VVD at its highest level, Ipsos, had them lower than the, than the final results, hmm. which might have been to even more late swing. But, but they did some analyses after the election, all of the pollsters. And most of those analyses, although they're not completely consistent between pollsters, they suggest that there indeed would have been some, some more late swing. But a part of the story is also 
uh, that they seem to have underestimated, or at least most pollsters have seem to have underestimated the support of the Liberal Party all along. So that, again, this gap between final polls and election results can be partly explained uh, by changes at the last time, but certainly not fully. Uh, and it might also be that there were some sort of middle-of-the-road right-wing voters who not particularly interested in politics, but were turning out for the VVD in the end, but might have not have been involved in polls because they don't want to participate in these things or don't want to state their opinion or were really a bit undecided until quite late. Um, so I'm, I'm not saying that the polls were terrible at that, uh, I, but I think it's important to keep these things in mind when you're talking about current poll numbers, But because in all of the last few elections, there was at least one party for which there was a sizable gap of at least four seats. So that's about uh, three percentage points or so or more. Uh, usually just one of the parties, uh, but it would not come as a surprise that we would see the same thing uh, in, in March. I was wondering, um, what is your thoughts on the VVD party? Ever since the election in 2017, they uh, have been polled as the, the, the largest party and that hasn't changed since March 2017. And even though there were numerous scandals, of course, uh, involving uh, the VVD party and also the cabinet itself, the child benefit scandal, for example, do you have an explanation why people still have so much faith in the prime minister's party? Well, I mean, before the corona crisis, they were sort of back to their levels of support they had at 2017, which was not particularly large, just over 20%. But because the uh, the Dutch electoral party system is so fragmented, that, that makes you by far the biggest party. And since the corona crisis, that has increased, which has been linked quite clearly to the management of the government of the corona crisis, which for all its failings, uh, has been perceived in, in, in popular opinion quite positively by, by most voters. And for, for one reason or another, the prime minister has managed to put all the things that don't go as well on the, on the health minister of the Christian Democrats. So that, that's an interesting uh, strategy and, and pattern. And we also know that when there is something that is perceived as being positive about government policy, it's mostly the biggest party in government that benefits from this. So ever since then, we've seen somewhat of an increase uh, to around 40 seats, which is far bigger than any of the other parties. But in, in historical terms, uh, we've seen uh, uh, parties of 45 uh, seats far more often. So it's it's not that the, the VVD is so terribly big uh, right now, it's that the others are are all quite <laughs> small. But still the question remains, why do voters not sort of walk away in big numbers? I think one of the reasons is that if you're a right, uh, centre-right voter, at least not very much interested in the far right. So what are your options if you don't like the Liberal Party? The main alternative on that centre-right would be the Christian Democrats, who are also in this government. And another alternative would be D66, a social liberal with on economic issues, perhaps standing more slightly to the right. They're also in this government. So in that sense, for the more moderate sort of centre-right voter, it's very hard to find an alternative to uh, the Liberal Party. Uh, so unless you're going to w want to go to one of the, the far-right parties, uh, so the, the, the Freedom Party, PVV, or uh, Forum for Democracy, 
Well, now there's uh, Ja21, uh, which is a new player, but also to be positioned more on the populist radical right, I think, than on the moderate uh, right, although they're pr- trying to present themselves as as more moderate than the other two populist challengers. And and because they're new and, and still so small, it's not really a credible challenger f- for someone who's looking for a credible um, party on the right. So even if you were not that happy with them, it's hard to say where you where you might go. And it's also because some of these scandals, like recently the child uh, care benefits scandal, where the government uh, resigned over this scandal, but it impacted most on uh, certain groups, mostly uh, groups with an ethnic minority background, which is not the classic sort of right-wing vote. So for many voters of the Liberal Party, they were not personally impacted by that scandal. They, They might think it's not good that what the government did, but in the end, it does not hurt them directly. And perhaps the whole coronavirus situation I mean, that impacts everyone directly. And even there, they might say, well, if we if we go with one of the far-right challengers, we get a policy that we don't want because they're going to get rid of all lockdown measures and, and when we might be in bigger trouble, um, especially for, for, for democracy, uh, which uh, has associated itself with a very uh, radical anti-corona measure uh, groups. So for everyone who has a more mainstream opinion on that, people might say, well, let's stick to the perceived safe hands of the current government and the Liberal Party with the Prime Minister is, is the biggest a party in that government. I'm interested you said that uh, the polls um, uh, maybe were part of the reason that the Labour Party started accelerating in 2012. Uh, do you worry they've become too influential or the media rely on them too much now and that uh, perhaps they're leading rather than uh, reflecting opinion? Um, well, even in 2012, I would say they first reflected opinion uh, and that had an impact both on media coverage of the Labour Party uh, as well as, and, and perhaps indirectly, on voters as well. And it's a bit of a contentious issue in uh, among pollsters and uh, polling researchers to what extent there is something like a bandwagon effect where people would start voting for a particular party because it is doing well in the polls. My reading of that literature is that insofar as it, it, this effect exists, it is mediated by news media. So it's parties doing well in polls, which leads to more favorable and perhaps also more media attention, especially for smaller parties, which then in turn increases your chances of uh, doing well uh, in subsequent polls and in the election. Um, so if a party is really doing really poorly in polls, sometimes you hear these interviews with party leaders where for or three quarters of the interview, they have to explain why their party is doing so badly. Hmm. I mean, that's harder than to get your points across compared to a situation where the interviewer is doing like, oh, you're doing well in the polls and why are you doing so well? And, and then, of course, it's far easier to get your agenda out. Um, so I think it's, there's an important role there for media to use polls in a responsible uh, way. I, I do think that over the last election cycles, especially in 2017, media have been more responsible in their, their use of poll, not, not only because they're, they're using aggregate polls like Bayernweiser uh, more often, but also I think because they use them perhaps somewhat less regularly or at least 
more media. They're, they're saying we're, we won't present polls as a main news story. Uh, of course, we use polls in our analysis and, uh, to say, well, this party is doing well and this party isn't, and why might that be the case? But not just sort of newsflash, here's a new poll and these are the figures. And also use opinion research, which is just more than just vote intention polls, in, in a better way, because there's lots of interesting questions you can ask to people other than who are they going to vote for. And I think uh, that use of, of polls... Uh, has become more prominent. Um, recently, a uh, main newspaper, uh, the Volkskrant, had a big report on research by ENO Research, one of the, uh, the posters that's also in the Peilingweiser, which was brought not really about their vote intention poll, which they also run, but a lot of on- other interesting stuff about how party leaders were doing, what issues were important to voters, how they responded to corona crisis, etc. So I think there's so much more interesting stuff you can do with uh, opinion uh, survey research uh, than just just looking at the poll numbers uh, or vote intention polls. Have they changed the way the politicians behave now? Do the politicians take too much of a cue from the opinion polls, do you think? I think politicians always did this. Uh, uh, of course, th- there were more polls, especially in the last election cycle, than maybe 20 years uh, ago, when you basically had two main uh, polling companies. And, and they, they polled a little bit more regularly, because once you have the internet panel structure set up, it's relatively easy to do that. My impression is that especially now with Peilingweiser, you have a sort of interesting dynamic. Most pollsters in the Netherlands, they do not work on commission basis, but they just do it by themselves. They fund the, the vote intention poll themselves. So a, a big reason to do that is because they get media attention for it. But if media only report on Apollo polls, then that media attention for individual pollsters becomes less relevant uh, for them. So their, uh, their reason to poll, at least as often, becomes smaller, which also puts me as the creator of an aggregate poll in a bit of a catch-22, because I'm, if I'm really successful in the sense of uh, getting a lot of media attention for Peilingweiser, uh, then the pollsters are not going to do any polls, and then there's no Peilingweiser anymore yes. as well. Um, so I, I think it's, it's good that... And we've also said to media, well, if you use Bilingweiser, also mention the name of uh, names of the companies. But at least this this pressure to put out as many polls as you possibly can, vote intention polls, I think that pressure is somewhat dampened by the presence of Bilingweiser. And instead, they at least some of these companies have, have focused more on, on the substantive uh, questions and research, which I think is a, is a good move. And that's also something that a tool like Bilingweiser cannot do at all. So I think it's great that they're doing uh, that. They're doing that. This time we have this unusual situation where uh, the, the voting is taking place over several days, not just on one day. And uh, some parties, I think this week, were expressing concerns that uh, opinion polls are still being uh, held and published uh, while people are voting from the 15th to the 17th. And there's even a debate taking place where, again, the lineup will be partly determined by the opinion polls. Uh, do, do, do you think the polls should be suspended from the Monday when people start voting? No, I don't think so. I mean, uh, Monday and Tuesday is really a form of early uh, voting. I think other countries that have early voting, either uh, by mail or in-person early voting also do not suspend polls. Like in the US, that's also not happening. If really the voting would start on Monday, and you say it's not early voting, it's really a three-day voting period, then my feeling is the campaign should 
end before uh, hand and you should not have any major debates or so as well on these last few days but it's it's strange to just continue campaigning but then just ban the polls i think it's good that pollsters have committed not to uh, present an exit poll mm-hmm. uh, because those are voters that come out of the the polling place that you actually know that have have voted and as a result these exit polls are really very reliable and then you get the strange situation that if you would publish them on monday then you would publish what people who voted on monday have voted but that might not be re- representative at all so you might get some strange dynamics but if you do a voting intention poll in the regular way that they would normally have done yes yeah, some of these people might have voted but it's the same way and it it has the same uh, potential biases as as regular polls so given that the campaign also continues i don't really see the issue there also the, the, the there's been some concern that because of the pandemic fewer people will turn out to vote so it might have I mean, turnouts generally been quite high in dutch elections this time it may be lower um do you think that uh, is likely and would that perhaps benefit some parties more than others well, you have the, a relatively complicated situation that some voters are allowed to vote by mail, over 70-year-olds. So for them, uh, given that mail-in option, uh, there might not be much of a turnout effect, although some might find it more complicated than going to the polling place. Uh, we don't know. But then there might be under 70s who still feel uh, threatened by coronavirus because of medical situation or otherwise. Uh, and among them, there, there might be a, lo- a lower turnout. Uh, I, I think it is likely that turnout will decline somewhat, but exactly how much estimates really range quite wildly. Uh, so based on uh, uh, local elections that we had in November in a few uh, areas, ENO research estimated, I think, uh, a 10% decline in turnout. So that, that would be quite sizable. But I think Maurice de Hond was talking about even bigger numbers. So in that sense, I, I don't exactly know how much this uh, decline in turnout is going to be. It will probably also really depend on the situation in March. I mean, if we're getting another surge over the next couple of weeks, it might be a different situation than if, if, if numbers are kept at a roughly current levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in that sense... It will, it will probably not help a turnout, right? I, I, I think it's quite safe to say that. Uh, but ha- exactly how big the decline is and then how this would affect the vote, given that it's a, such a particular group that might not vote. And it, it's not like it's all the elderly, which we know are voting for, uh, like the Christian Democrats and, and even the Labour Party in greater numbers. But that group has the right to vote uh, through a, a postal vote. So... In that sense, uh, it's it's hard to really predict how that might uh, pan out. Do you have any idea who who might be less likely to vote? Are we talking about low-income groups or people with health issues? And is there any evidence that that makes up the support for one party more than more than others? I think that's really hard to say because polling vote intention is difficult in the best of years uh, because more people usually say yes, of course I'm going to vote, and then they they're not going right. Mm. So usually it's it's only the ones that say yes, I'm I'm certain I will vote. I think ENO research uh, did a poll along those lines, and then they came out at almost the same turnout figure as the last election. 
but I think that might be a bit optimistic because we already also know at least some stories, but that's more anecdotal uh, from uh, individuals who are saying, yes, but I've not been out of the house for almost a year because I fear getting the coronavirus due, due to my mer- medical situation. And we know that that group of people with underlying medical issues is uh, above 1 million people, but how severe those issues are and how people perceive that themselves and what and how these this group is actually voting, I, I, it'd be very hard to get that out of a voting pool because the numbers become very small. Will you be staying up on the election night and following eagerly? What's uh, your schedule uh, as the results come in? Um, well, I think I'll, I'll just be following it from home. Um, we also have to see how many results will be getting in. It, it is likely that they start counting the mail-in ballots and the early votes already on Wednesday. I think they're allowed to do that. Of course, not to announce any results, but start pre-processing uh, things. So uh, some of these partial results might be available relatively early, but not full uh, local areas, because mostly this is reported by municipality. So how that's going to affect when we know uh, something, of course, there'll be an exit poll. So that will give at least some indication. But it it might take a bit longer in the end to get everything counted also because they cannot count in the polling stations or not in all polling stations this time. Uh, And so then we have to transfer the vote to another location. So it adds extra time. So uh, I, I hope we'll, we'll get some result, but it might be that when I, I, I go to bed uh, uh, around midnight or so, it, it might not be very clear entirely, a- apart from the picture that the exit poll provides. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us uh, this morning, uh, Tom. And uh, yes, uh, for all thank of you for having me. Your teaching. No, it's it very enlightening. That's all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes, even uh, the Ongraus. Uh, you will have a link uh, in the liner notes. Yeah. Just you don't, don't click, have to on, click it. on it. No. Uh, you can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl and don't send us photos of uh, the Ongraus. Or your PBS. Or your pubic hair, pubic louse. If you want to uh, help us out, please subscribe uh, to the podcast and leave us a rating. You can also back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash DutchNewsNL. You can earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast and we will also try to answer all your questions. My thanks to Gordon Derek and Tom Lauers. I'm Paul Peters and we'll be back next week. Hopefully with less uh, (laughs) new (laughs) thousand. Less new references. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) 